Costume Drama Rewind, your hosts Megan Jutt and Laura Skog have an important announcement to make. This is the first time Lindsay Lohan is making an appearance on this podcast, and it will probably be the last unless we decide to review that tour de force, Liz and Dick. <laughs> this week's film is Bobby, made in 2006 and directed by Emilio Estevez, with an amazing ensemble cast, including Sir Anthony Hopkins, Harry Belafonte, Elijah Wood, Sharon Stone, Lawrence Fishburne, William H. Macy, Freddie Rodriguez, Nick Cannon, Helen Hunt, and Martin Sheen, who appears to just be playing President Bartlett in retirement. I want to note that we originally developed the script for this movie over the summer. We experienced a technical failure and also a failure of my sinuses, and tabled it until the fall. We are recording the night before the 2020 election, an event for which we will hopefully have a result by the time you're listening to this episode. But first, a synopsis with Laura. The movie takes place over the course of June 4th, 1968, the day Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated after winning the California Democratic primary. Even though RFK is the titular character, the actor who plays him is only ever seen from behind and actual footage of him, as well as real news videos about various issues in the 60s, are used instead. Similarly, the movie is less about Robert Kennedy as a person and more as a symbol for the times. So we meet a wide array of characters who are supposed to represent both the lives of normal people and cultural trends and social concerns as they go through their day at the Ambassador Hotel, which will host Kennedy's primary victory party that night. For example, Lindsay Lohan plays a young woman who's getting married at the hotel to Elijah Wood, one of her high school friends, because this will allow him to get sent to Germany instead of Vietnam. Meanwhile, Martin Sheen and Helen Hunt play a middle-aged couple vacationing at the hotel and they're helping each other work through their insecurities. Busboy Jose Rojas, played by Freddy Rodriguez, is frustrated that he can't go to the Dodgers game that night because he's been scheduled to work extra shifts because of the party. He gives the tickets to the chef Edward, played by Lawrence Fishburne, and another busboy, Miguel, played by Jacob Vargas, gives him a radio so he can listen to the game instead. For Nick Cannon's character, Dwayne Clark, the only black member of Candy's campaign staff in the movie, Kennedy represents hope in the wake of civil rights struggles and Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination earlier that year. His nervousness and excitement about meeting Kennedy before his victory speech is palpable, and he even gets to talk to the crowd before Kennedy starts his speech. Most of the characters end up in the ballroom as they watch Kennedy make his speech, and there's a huge crowd of people pushing into the kitchen in their efforts to meet him. In this crowd of well-wishers, a young man appears as if from nowhere and starts shooting. Kennedy, Helen Hunt, Elijah Wood, one of the hotel workers, and two junior campaign staffers are shot. Jose holds Bobby Kennedy while they wait for the paramedics to arrive. And the film ends with a voiceover of Kennedy's speech to the Cleveland City Club, given the day after King's assassination, as the wounded are rushed into ambulances and other characters deal with the fallout. First impressions. I had never heard this movie until you suggested it, and it's really emotionally stirring, and I was very impressed should take that as a sign of my ongoing good taste. I saw this movie once in college, where it was our on-campus free movie of the month, and it's really stayed with me ever since, but it felt so much more emotionally resonant re-watching it earlier this summer, even though I'm no longer the wide-eyed innocent college student I once was. But let's get right down to the heart of the matter. The election of 1968 was another one that arrived at a time of unrest, frustration, even despair. More than half a million Americans were fighting in Vietnam, of which more than 40% had been drafted. The country was experiencing racial tension and rioting, as the promise of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 had yet to be realized. In April came the murder of Dr. King. 
Lyndon Johnson was running for re-election, but the popularity and goodwill he'd experienced early in his presidency were rapidly draining away. At the start of 1968, Defense Secretary Robert McNamara claimed that the North Vietnamese will to fight was fading, which they immediately proved to be false with the launch of the Tet Offensive. Johnson's approval ratings fell like a stone to below 35%, and Democrats began looking for a new candidate to represent them in the election. Their first choice was actually Bobby Kennedy, but he initially declined to challenge a sitting president in the primary. Anti-war Democrat Eugene McCarthy stepped into the race instead, poured resources into the New Hampshire primary, and ended up winning 42% of that state to Johnson's 49%, which did two things, convince Bobby to get in and convince Johnson to get out. Johnson announced at the end of March 1968 that he would withdraw from the race and threw his support to his vice president, Hubert Humphrey, who was content to gather delegates from among party leaders while leaving Kennedy and McCarthy to battle it out in the primaries. And battle they did. By the time the primary campaign rolled into California, they'd won about the same number of primaries, with Kennedy holding almost 400 delegates to McCarthy's 250, but Humphrey leading them both with well over 500. The urgency and anxiety that the campaign staffers show in the film, at least not the ones busy getting high with Ashton Kutcher in a hotel room, (laughs) is real. California would be critical to Kennedy's hopes to become president. Throughout the movie, Jose, Miguel, and Edward discussed racial prejudice. Anti-Mexican discrimination was nothing new at the time. After the end of the Mexican-American War in 1848, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo gave 55% of Mexican territory to the U.S. As Jose and Miguel say in the movie, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. Mexicans who decided to become U.S. citizens were supposed to have their property rights respected. Many of the claims that they filed to ensure this were denied. Fast forwarding to the 20th century, An L.A. downtown news article records that in the 1930s, the U.S. government deported about one million people who were either Mexican-Americans or Mexican nationals, and one of the biggest raids occurred in Los Angeles in La Placida Park, in which 400 people were ambushed and rounded up. These raids were supposedly intended to deport undocumented people, but in reality, many of those who were deported were American citizens, and the raids were conducted because Mexican-Americans were considered to be taking away jobs from real Americans during the Depression. The Zoot Suit riots in L.A. began over several days in 1943, when servicemen attacked Mexican-American teenagers who were known for wearing zoot suits, which were basically dramatically tailored suits. In context of the film's backdrop, like the Black community, the Mexican-American community started pressing for their civil rights, and this became the Chicano movement. Their demands include workers' rights, voters' rights, even educational matters, Bobby Kennedy even met with some of the participating students during the 1968 East Los Angeles walkouts, in which high school students protested to achieve several goals, including gain curriculum that reflected Mexican-American contributions to society. As we saw, the elation of Kennedy and his supporters following his victory in California turned to horror very, very quickly. At the time, presidential candidates weren't given Secret Service protection, so Kennedy had only three bodyguards around him, an ex-FBI agent and two former pro-athletes. When they brought him through the kitchen of the Ambassador Hotel, standing in the crowd, was 24-year-old Sirhan Sirhan, a failed racing jockey. And out of respect for his victims, that's the only thing I choose to say about him. He stepped out from behind a tray stacker and began firing a 22 caliber revolver containing eight shots. Three of them hit Kennedy— one in the head, just below his right ear, and two in his right armpit. Busboy Juan Romero, the real person represented by Jose Rojas, and who moments ago had been shaking Kennedy's hand, cradled his head and pressed a rosary into his hand, knowing that Kennedy was a devout Catholic, as Kennedy asked him, is everybody okay? 
Five other people were wounded, including two journalists, two activists, and a campaign volunteer. All of them lived. Kennedy was taken first to Central Receiving Hospital a mile away, where doctors manually massaged his heart to get it beating more strongly, before transferring him to nearby Good Samaritan Hospital. With his wife Ethel, who was three months pregnant with their 11th child, at his side, he died just before 2 a.m. on June 6th, 26 hours after being shot. Juan Romero remained haunted by the experience for decades, trying to avoid the now-iconic photo of him holding Kennedy, but he received letters for years from strangers offering both comfort and blame for his role in the story. He finally visited Kennedy's grave at Arlington National Cemetery in 2010, purchasing the first suit of his life for the experience, and he told the oral history nonprofit StoryCorps, I felt like I needed to ask Kennedy to forgive me for not being able to stop those bullets from harming him. When I wore the suit and I stood in front of his grave, I felt a little bit like that first day I met him. I felt important. I felt American. And I felt good. Romero passed away two years ago at the age of 68. Kennedy's widow, Ethel, is 92 years old and currently living in Chicago. So now we come to the question, how many campaign voter hats are we awarding to this film? I'm going with four campaign voter hats. Emilio Estevez did an impressive job weaving together multiple storylines, some profound, some humorous, some just anodyne, into one story overall. And some of the topics, such as prejudice against the Latino community, are still highly relevant today. As mentioned earlier, the movie isn't really about RFK himself, and I would have liked to see more of the story touch on him as a person. So I like unconventional narrative structures, and I actually really love the symbolism of RFK being mostly off-screen, while his story is revealed through other people. And I love this film. I know that most of the critics didn't, but I think it is stunningly beautiful and absolutely moving, and I am awarding it a full five campaign voter hats for the third time in this podcast. So finally, we come to a few sundry other notes. The Ambassador Hotel is essentially one of the characters in the movie, and they were able to film on site. The hotel was built in L.A. in 1921, and it was this glamorous luxury hotel, and it had a nightclub, the Coconut Grove. Our friend, question mark, of the podcast, F. Scott Fitzgerald, called it the greatest, gaudiest spree in American history. Thanks, I hate it. (laughs) Over the years, numerous celebrities and public figures went there, and the Academy Awards were hosted there six times. Candy's assassination basically marked the beginning of the hotel's decline, and after losing its popularity, it closed in 1989. There had always been some filming on the site, but a lot more films got shot there after it closed because they now had more space and fewer constraints. Our current president even bought the property in 1991, looking to replace the building with one of his own. Despite preservationist efforts, demolition started in 2004, and Bobby was the last movie to film there. What's currently standing on the site is the Robert F. Kennedy Community Schools. But moving on to drugs. (laughs) During the film, we see a suspiciously well-groomed, clean, and tidy hippie played by Ashton Kutcher. Who is somehow staying in a luxury hotel drinking a $6 glass of orange juice. (laughs) We see him do acid with Shia LaBeouf and Brian Garrity. This is supposed to represent the drug and hippies culture chunk of the 60s. LSD, or lysergic acid diethylam diethylamide thank you for that (laughs) was created in 1938 in switzerland it was originally used in clinical research but illicit use started spreading especially as some patients did report it helped them with various ailments 
And the CIA even conducted a program, MKUltra, which continued work done by Japan and Germany during World War II, in which they tested the impact of LSD on people to see if it could be used as a mind control weapon in the Cold War. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The same year the movie takes place, 1968, iconic journalist and author Tom Wolfe, the man in the white suit, published a book called The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, in which he chronicles Ken Kesey, the author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and his followers, the so-called Merry Pranksters, who made an LSD-infused trek across the U.S. a few years before. Kesey had gone exposed to LSD because he participated in MKUltra, and he completely embraced it, and the trip was partially to essentially spread the gospel of this enlightenment they thought the drug brought. LSD would get listed as a Schedule One drug in 1970. We wanted to end this episode the same way the movie Bobby ends, with a reading of selections from the speech that Bobby Kennedy gave to the Cleveland City Club the day after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. It is not a day for politics. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about this mindless menace of violence in America, which again stains our land and every one of our lives. It is not the concern of any one race. The victims of the violence are black and white, rich and poor, young and old, famous and unknown. They are most important of all, human beings whom other human beings loved and needed. No one can be certain who will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed, and yet it goes on and on and on. Whenever any American's life is taken by another American unnecessarily, whether it is done in the name of the law or in the defiance of law, by one man or a gang, in cold blood or in passion, in an attack of violence or in response to violence, whenever we tear at the fabric of life which another man has painfully and clumsily woven for himself and his children, the whole nation is degraded. Too often we excuse those who are willing to build their own lives on the shattered dreams of other human beings, but this much is clear. Violence breeds violence, repression brings retaliation, and only a cleansing of our whole society can remove this sickness from our soul. For when you teach a man to hate and fear his brother, when you teach that he is a lesser man because of his color or his beliefs or the policies he pursues, when you teach that those who differ from you threaten your freedom or your job or your home or your family, then you also learn to confront others not as fellow citizens but as enemies, to be met not with cooperation but with conquest, to be subjugated and mastered. We learn at the last to look at our brothers as aliens alien men with whom we share a city, but not a community, men bound to us in a common dwelling, but not in a common effort. We learn to share only a common fear, only a common desire to retreat from each other, only a common impulse to meet disagreement with force. But we can perhaps remember, even if only for a time, that those who live with us are our brothers, that they share with us the same short movement of life, that they seek, as do we, Nothing but the chance to live out their lives in purpose and in happiness, winning what satisfaction and fulfillment they can.